kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, apparently, uh, this is the Christmas version of Auntie Nanny, or at least the show right before Christmas. I know Kevin said that no one was doing a show, and I was like, uh, mm, I don't know about that. So, um, yeah, I, I was pretty sure we were going to do a show. I didn't know what form it would take. Um, because I work all the way up until Christmas Eve, but, um, found some, some interesting stuff and some things have gone on, um, in the news that were interesting. So, uh, tonight, uh, it's Barry and I, hi Barry, how are you? I'm fine. You're fine. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, let's see. Nothing that I have in my notes, but uh, Joe Cocker died today. I know. Uh, Billy was... Whitelaw died as well yesterday, was it? Yeah. You know, it, it's really sad when this happens so close to the holidays, but I, I can't say that I'm really surprised about it. Um, Joe Cocker was, God, he was 70 years old. Um, yeah. He was not looking real good there at the end. But, um, you know, anyway, uh, someone to remember from, oh, God, the, the 60s, the 70s, I guess. Um, yeah. Didn't really listen to much of his music, but uh, my, my mom did. So. Well, if you liked gravelly voice, he was uh, a good <laughs> Very choice. true. Um. Let's see. Other things I didn't really talk about. It looks like Belarus's economy is um, imploding, but that's likely due to Saudi Arabia and their, you know, oil price wars. Um, yeah, I think they're. <laughs> it seems like everybody wants Russia off the map. Well, yeah. Um, partly, a lot of Russians seem to want Russia off the map <laughs> by the way they behave. But yeah, yeah. Um, the oligarchs just don't listen to Putin anymore. Well, so their country's turned into a hellhole, basically. <laughs> slowly, 
Did you hear the stuff about Apple in Russia this week? No. Tell me. Ah. See if you get seen using an iPhone in Russia or an iPod. Right. Or an Apple product. Uh-huh. You'll get beaten up. Really? Because the CEO of Apple came out of the closet and said he was gay. Oh, for God's sake. There's a very large statue of an iPhone in Moscow that got dismantled. God. But Putin claims he's not anti-gay. No, no, he's he's not. <laughs> but yeah, there are gangs roving the street, beating people up using Apple products. That's that's really fantastic. But he's not anti-gay. No. At all. Perfect. I am. Um, I didn't really. I, I didn't have really a lot of stories that I, I picked from this week. I tried not to make stuff too depressing because we could talk about Belarus and them shutting down the stores and the economy, you know, hitting the skids. But that's not really um, conducive to a happy well, holiday season. Oh, come on. Happy holidays. A time where we became the story of a poor pregnant woman being forced to sleep in a barn. Oh, uh, well... Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> very true. But you're talking traditional pastimes, and I'm kind of not so much. Um, I think things are pretty much stressful enough for people right now that they don't want to add any more stress to it. And don't get me wrong, we do a lot of that to ourselves at Christmas time. I mean, I spent my day off yesterday, I made dozens of cookies, pans of brownies, vegetarian fudge, and then I was running around steam cleaning my floors and my husband's like don't don't you want to relax on your day off and i'm like well yeah but i don't want to be doing this stuff christmas eve after i get home from work either (laughs) (laughs) which seems like a smart thing to me so i had a really busy day yesterday um yeah well i've been busy as well i don't know if you saw my photo on facebook i've been Mounting my uh, one of my old monitors up above the desk for the second you know, computer. I, I have your, <laughs> your setup makes me so jealous. I can't believe it. it. Just blows my mind. Yeah, and once I save up and get all the monitors to be matching, it'll be even better. <laughs> <laughs> it's all mostly apart from the new monitor. All the other ones are second hand. So yeah. Okay, you know if it still works. And that's that's one of the problems I think we have, you know, as a world, is if something still works, but there's something newer out, we tend to throw stuff away. And stuff isn't necessarily meant to be disposable, although when you can get a better model, it definitely makes sense to do it. Well, I buy new stuff to get better performance, but I keep... The last one that I bought mm-hmm. as a backup in case something goes wrong. Um, you know, it's funny. And sell the older stuff. Vapors are like that. We're backups of backups of backups, people. Yeah. And um, I don't it come, think It that comes from having tiny SIGA-like batteries that run out after 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and they always do. Yeah. And no matter what you do, it's like, oh my God, Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
um, I also didn't mention this, but let's see. Um, North Korea allegedly threatened Sony Studios over the movie The Interview. Yeah. And they pulled it, which is, you know, their prerogative and well, fine. Sony, um, Sony, if you look at it, everybody's accusing them, Obama especially, uh, you shouldn't have backed down, you shouldn't have pulled the film. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a choice. All the cinemas had pulled the film. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so no. if they didn't have anywhere showing it, there's no point <laughs> them continuing to advertise it. That's true. And um, I don't know. It, it just seemed kind of funny because um, don't don't get me wrong. I I like James Franco and and uh, the other goofy guy. Um, they make some funny if stupid films but everything I had heard about the interview was that it was just terrible so um, you know I've, I've seen mixed reviews I've seen yes, really bad uh, Mudflop has arrived and said Seth Rogen yes. Seth Rogen yeah Seth yeah. Rogen but uh, Lizzie Kaplan's in it as well so it's a really good cast um, and it's just it's an old fashioned more slapstick style film so the critics really... just don't like that kind of thing well, you don't really see that much anymore. But, I mean, I had seen really terrible reviews for it. But um, the last thing I heard, the last two things I heard about it, were that they're going to actually release it on Crackle. Yeah. Which is their streaming service, and that it would be released for free. So that's that's realistic to see a, a new film. And uh, then the last thing I saw today was that North Korea's internet is down. Aw. What a shocking coincidence. Yes, it's it's funny how that happens. Although, I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think North Korea had enough hamsters running on the wheel to power the one computer they've got in the country. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think the one guy who can hack anything uh, had enough computing power to do what they did to Sony. So yeah. I, I can see them getting somebody else. They, they definitely had a little help. Yeah, just a little bit. Remember, yeah, North Korea doesn't rate anywhere on computer skills <laughs> <laughs> in the world they're table. They're probably below the likes of um, Mozambique and all these other tiny African countries. Well, uh, what I was going to say is their best computer is probably an Abacus. Oh, I don't know. That sounds uh, awfully, you know, capitalist. <laughs> being able to count things. Well, you know, but um, it's also environmentally friendly. No, you've got to kill a tree. <laughs> you, you, you've got to, like, get tools to carve it and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, They're not as backward as people think, but they are really backward. <laughs> Their capital city has basically all the technology in the country. Nice. That's that's what you want. Well, any reporters that manage to drift away from their handlers. <laughs> I mean, they, they do a bit of filming and it's like, there's nothing here. <laughs> it's like the um, uh, Kim Jong-il's tomb. There's a bunch of reporters went to visit that last mm-hmm. year. And it was freezing cold. There was right. no heating. There wasn't enough power to have the heating on. 
<laughs> in the tomb of their dear leader god yes <laughs> yeah it, it really is now i don't want to say it's a backwards place but um capitalism does serve a purpose yeah uh outlawing it is you pretty much get yourself that yeah um if you're in north korea you want to be in the top one percent Even then, yeah. it's probably not a guarantee of much of a life. Well, it's the equivalent of being probably in the top 50% in most other countries. Mm. Well, I'm just glad we don't live there. Although, uh, their internet is down. So. What I did I, like yeah, was I a bunch of reporters... Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to live there. No internet. Yeah. No. <laughs> what I did like was a bunch of um, our reporters from America went and asked the White House press secretary... Uh, did we have anything to do with it? And the White House press secretary said, well, you know, if there's a problem in North Korea, that's a problem you should take up with North Korea. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of funny. It's also kind of true, since yeah. nobody actually knows what's going on in North Korea most of the time. Well, you could the send North a Koreans. satellite. You could send one of our satellites to do a flyover, but you aren't going to see much. Well, that's what I mean. When they do these satellite flyovers, that's how they know all the technologies in the one place. Because, you know, the, the nighttime maps you see with all the lit-up cities. You get to North Korea, and there's one city. Yeah, exactly. Lit up. Ooh. <laughs> and not very brightly. <laughs> yeah. there There is a difference between North Korea and South Korea. They're very yeah, South different. Korea is like a spotlight on one of those overhead maps. <laughs> They've got technology everywhere. Yeah, they do. Do you know the all mobile phones people use in South Korea right. have TV receivers built in? Nice. Because when they commute to work, they're all sitting there watching TV on the trains. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know that I'd waste my time watching TV, but um, TV here kind of sucks, although we don't have shows like uh, Asian countries tend to have these kind of um, crazy stunt shows you don't really see too much in America. So I can see why they don't watch TV. <laughs> I like um, Mudflop's comment. We made nice with Cuba. Next will be North Korea. Well, well we did make nice, made with, nice North with North Korea. Cuba, Apparently we but... made Kim Jong whatever the hell his name is in ill the new CEO of Sony Pictures. Kim Jong Un I believe Un. is his name. Yeah. But yeah, made nice with Cuba, apart from the articles I saw this week where um, lots of places were slanging off Cuban cigars suddenly <laughs> after decades of people going, oh, Cuban cigars, brilliant. Seemingly yeah. suddenly, now they're not as good. <laughs> they're not as good because they're going to have to pay a lot more for them. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's even if our FDA allows them to come over here. Oh, yeah. Monte Cristo cigars. The one bit of smoking I miss. You know, uh, the only smoking I really miss is uh, clove cigarettes, like the real cloves that you can't... <laughs> Turkish cigarettes, yeah. ...fucking get in America anymore. You can't Thank get you. them most places because they're really not pleasant for people around you when you're smoking them. No, oh, they smell horrible, but they are so... <laughs> 
so tasty. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's the only smoking I really miss. No, um, I, I miss Monte Cristos. <laughs> Hand-rolled on a virgin's thigh and all that. You know. Well, you, Winston Churchill, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, all users of Monte Cristo. You know, I'm in good company. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't afford them anymore. Well, <laughs> I could possibly afford clothes, but I don't know. It um, it required a certain lifestyle, too. It wasn't yeah, something but, you said at yeah. home. Small I mean, the only place was... you get clove cigarettes are these days are Turkey and mm-hmm. Central Europe, uh, well, Eastern Europe, yeah. and some of the Asian countries. Um, well, that's the only places that still kind of like them. Yeah, well, those days are done, but um, that was definitely something I used to smoke in my club days. Oh, incidentally. That's- Related, mm-hmm. you're familiar with Camel cigarettes, yes, and they did originate in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And my father, when he was in the army, <laughs> saw their production. And 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 all all I will say is, the rumors were apparently true as to why they were called Camel. <laughs> okay, they couldn't afford salt. Peter to help to get the cigarettes burned, so they used a camel product. Okay. Yeah. Did not ever need to know that. What I was going to say was, (laughs) like, when I first started vaping, you know how everything's like a cigarette flavor, quote-unquote, and it's all, like, really sweet, unburnt tobacco-ish, but not really tobacco flavor? Yeah. DK Tab's all right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The only flavor I could stand was Turkish. Yeah. That that was the only one that was available to me at all. So, yeah. For well, what I used it's to worth. make a mix of Cuban Supreme and oh, what was it? I um, can't remember the other one. But yeah, it was. I made a sort of cigar flavor mm. using multiple flavorings. We used to um, Mamo who um, she she's kind of famous. I, if you listen to Russ's show, you know who she is. Um, well, I don't know she, who she was without listening to Russ's show. <laughs> she um she's a modder, but yeah. you know that's she's why I know her. one of us. Hmm? Yeah, that's why I know of her. Yeah. Don't know her personally, but I heard of her before I started <laughs> listening to Russ. So um, I knew my move from God way back. And um, she got a whole bunch of liquid she didn't like one time, and she dumped it all in a jar together. She used all that liquid for like a year. (laughs) And she was like, you know, alone they all kind of were horrible, but when you mixed them together, they weren't too bad. I was like, oh, that's just nasty. (laughs) And and you're sitting there smelling it with your eyes watering. (laughs) I have to say, some of the Flavor West tobaccos, Mm -hmm. I, I... don't know what people's taste buds are like but there's one I think it was called Stag and I got it and I mixed it up and Mm -hmm. tried it and I'm like oh that's not nice leave it a few days, try it again try it, oh it's getting worse so the whole bottle of uh, flavouring got put down the drain you know what's actually I don't think old socks is a good (laughs) flavour 
Flavor West used to have a flavoring called Tidewater Tobacco. Yes, I I had a bottle of that as well. I liked that. Yeah, it's not too bad. No, it's not. You, you add a little menthol to it, and it's it's got a you know it's just interesting. You know, you don't think of citrus and tobacco together, but it wasn't uh, bad. I, I baked that for a it. really long time. It was nice so. with a little bit of honey, but honey's got that awful. Oh, honey effect. smells like cat pee when you vape it. Well, not immediately. It's about twenty well, minutes later. <laughs> Yeah, no, not immediately to you, but to yeah. everyone around you, it kind of smells like cat pee. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's funny how stuff that can that tastes so amazing just smells so freaking rancid after you vape it. But no, I guess honey, that's true. Of honey anything. is probably the worst one. Um, yeah, you can always tell when a flavoring's got honey in it. Yeah, <sighs> Tidewater is a coastal Virginia. Reference yeah. yes, Tidewater tobacco. Well, yeah, somehow I don't in. think they cured their tobacco with lemon and lime. No, but they grew the tobacco in fields that were prone to tidal water. Yes, which gave it a slightly different spiciness, slightly different odor and flavor. Oh, yeah. Um, remember Greenpeace? Oh God. <laughs> Uh, well, you do. We talked about Greenpeace last week, yeah. and I, I guess we got off to a slow start, but that's okay. We had our Ooshiny moment. We'll have plenty <laughs> more. We always do on this show. But uh, so they sent PBS NewsHour sent some drones. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm talking about drones, and I'm not cringing. But they sent some drones to fly over the Nazca lines. It's pretty bad. It, it took. Yeah, sure. Well, there's actually a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, last week, Greenpeace activists provoked international outrage when they undertook a publicity stunt, trespassing on the Nazca Lines World Heritage Site. Newly released drone footage shows how much damage they left behind. Uh, the Nazca figures were drawn between 500 BC and 500 AD by removing a thin patina of dark rocks covering light sand. It's one of the driest regions in the world, and the lack of water and wind has helped preserve the lines for centuries. But they're still quite fragile. When you step on it, you simply break the patina and expose the bottom surface, said Peru's Deputy Cultural Minister, Louis Jamie Castillo. How long does it take for nature to again create a patina? Hundreds of years? Thousands of years? We really don't know. Um, I, have you ever seen the pictures of the pads the archaeologists wear on their feet when they go. Yes. To yeah, they're they're like these big pads to Giant really distribute their body yeah. weight. And um when you saw the pictures of the Greenpeace people, they were all wearing just regular tennis shoes. You can't really so, do that. And some of them in hiking boots, which is what caused a lot of the damage. Yeah, it did. Um the drone footage documents Damage that can be best assessed from the air. The outline of what appears to be the letter C from the Greenpeace message is visible. Horizontal lines show where the message was laid out, and there are large paths revealing where the activists walked in and out of the site. So, um, if anybody's interested in that, I can drop the link in chat. Kevin sucks. For God's sake, why are we talking about Kevin? Just saying. But yeah, the the giant sea 
added to the hummingbird is not an improvement by any means. No, the hummingbird's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty awful that Greenpeace does that, but Greenpeace has done a lot of things over the years. And oh, yeah. I was reading about... Um, remember when Greenpeace and a whole bunch of the animal rights people got together and said how horrible it was to kill baby seals and you know, no one deserved to die that way. I, granted, being clubbed to death, not a fun way to go, but it's still how traditional peoples, and there are less and less of them in the world, get their meat and their clothing for the winter. So basically the government in British Columbia and a bunch of other places said, well, there will be no more seal hunting. So these people pretty much started starving to death. And then because of how bad Greenpeace treated these people, when the oil companies came in and wanted to lay pipeline, they said the only thing that could stop them from laying pipeline was the native people's. And the native peoples were treated so badly by Greenpeace that they turned and sided with the oil companies and basically said they sided with the oil companies because they trust the oil companies a million times more than they trusted Greenpeace who lied about absolutely everything. Yeah. So, And it's pretty funny because you look at the difference between 10 years ago and now they are drilling and they're getting the oil but all of a sudden, Greenpeace has kind of reversed itself on its stance about seal hunting. Yeah. And so has like the World Wildlife Fund and, and all these other places that were just, they do this stuff for shock and awe. Yeah. In a way. Well, uh, I said to, a, well, I posted on a friend's Facebook when he was talking about the Nazca thing. And it's like Greenpeace is the prime example of thought and action disconnecting. Well, they don't think before they do anything. They just want more publicity to get people to donate more to them. Yeah. You know, it. and they aren't the primary ones. Look at our governments. Yeah. They do that shit better yeah, than any. Yeah, but your government isn't claiming to be saving the earth and be this giant charity. Yeah, but they're not a charity. They're not a good charity no. by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they've allowed people to starve to death. Um, and that's okay, I guess, because it's okay if we all just die and fall off the planet. That's not a problem. Oh, well, your crazy greens don't care about people at all. <laughs> not really. They it's all, would it's really all nature like must be protected. Um, well, they would they like a, to, a massive reduction in the amount yeah, of people they, on the planet. They don't seem to make the connection that, yeah, we are part of nature, you know? Mm. Funny how that all works. Yeah. But you can you can draw whatever conclusions you want from that. But um, here's my conclusion. Uh, Greenpeace sucks. Don't give them money. Yeah. Never okay. Have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just my that's just my conclusion. That's what I'm drawing here. Okay. The global cell network is wildly insecure. Anyone could be listening to your calls. I know we haven't discussed this a million times before, and we're actually not going to talk about Stingray technology tonight. 
Oh. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> if you're feeling like the only way to keep your personal details private at this point is to curl up in a hole with a flip phone, you're not going to like this. The Washington Post is reporting that German researchers have discovered a major flaw in the SS7, the global cellular network designed in the 1980s that routes phone calls and texts. The findings will be presented at a conference in Hamburg later this month by Tobias Engel, founder of this. What am I reading? Sternroot. Sternroot and. Strongroot, I believe that means. Okay. And Kasten Null, the chief scientist for security research labs. The two each found the vulnerabilities used during separate research. The flaws are the latest and most damning assessment of SS7 security status. The post explains that weak points mainly exist in non-essential but important features like those that allow a moving phone to switch from one cell tower to another without losing a call. Spies and hackers alike could be exploiting the vulnerabilities to listen in or record billions of calls and text messages. Even though carriers have spent a lot to upgrade their data infrastructure to 3G and 4G and make everything more secure, they still have to use SS7 to enable intercarrier data exchange. If I have AT&T and you have Verizon and we call each other, we're exposed. The post also points out that hackers could use any SS7-enabled carrier, basically all of them, anywhere in the world to hack other networks. It's like you secure the front door of the house, but the back door is wide open, Engel said. I doubt we're the first ones in the world to realize how open the SS7 network is. Government intelligence agencies around the world likely know about and even use the SS7 vulnerabilities, though the research didn't find specific evidence of this. And it's not clear how wide the flaws have been exploited, if at all, by other criminals and malicious hackers. Engel and Knoll say there are two approaches to exploiting the vulnerabilities. Hackers can either forward calls to themselves before sending them on to the intended recipient, or locally, they could pick up all the texts and calls going through the airwaves using a radio antenna and then use SS7 to request temporary encryption keys from carriers to unlock the data. The latter technique would allow hackers to get around even strong encryption on 3G networks. Between the Sony Pictures hack and the ICANN intrusion, which we'll talk about later, not to mention other revelations about NSA surveillance last year, it's starting to seem like we need a completely new approach to large-scale digital security. But perhaps it has more to do with a change in the mindset. Spending in cybersecurity is expanding rapidly, as is the realization that relying on a single solution to protect networks and information isn't enough, said Jay Kaplan, CEO of the enterprise security link Synac. Security is a puzzle with many intricate pieces. There isn't a silver bullet. Which is true. Yeah. But um, to be fair, they've known about problems with SS7 for a long time. Um, I can't speak for anywhere else, but knowing people who work in IT and in various satellite industries, um, like the British MI6 and MI5, for secure calls out in the field, they use their own phones that run their own software. (laughs) Which might be a way we have to go. It's funny, everything today... Nothing is anything you code or do anything with yourself. Everything is an app. Everything is pre-made. Well, um, Java, they, Java caused Java. such huge problems with security in general with right. electronics because it's a modular system. Mm-hmm. 
So what? to build a Java program, you go to the libraries, find code that does what you want, and just join it all together. And this means it is completely insecure. <laughs> but it, more modern software is based on Java. Yeah, well, and that's probably a problem. If we actually want security and we don't want it to be easy, we're probably going to have to build stuff ourselves. Well, Apple, Samsung, and lots of the other manufacturers are bringing out alternative systems but it's getting the operators to change their software that's well, the it, hard bit well, the phones it's the are secure There's... it's the network that's mm -hmm. got huge holes in it yeah and that's just a basic reality and you know business there is like business everywhere where they don't want to spend anything they just want to make all this profit and let stuff decay around itself well, well like if, I said people... when you've got all the police and secret services desperately trying to uh, <laughs> illegally get people's mobile phone data well, when they I know mean, damn fine you know... that the really serious criminals and terrorists aren't using mobile phones well, to, to communicate important information no, but you know what they do? They go, they have these meetings in person. They take and put their phones out in the center of the table, and the tabletop spins. When you leave, you won't even have your own cell phone. Yeah, and they all use um, pay-as-you-go phones as well. Yeah. So they're not even registered to a name. Well, it used to be kind of really good because you used to be able to just get, there was a certain kind of cell phone used to be able to just get, go into a public library, register it. You never really had to tell them your name or anything. Yeah. And uh, those were great. Of course, that really no longer exists anymore, well, which is you'll a shame. Well, you, you can still go and buy unregistered phones if you know well, where to look. Right, but I'm saying, you know, that the idea of anonymity as just being something a normal person wants, that idea is slowly being drummed out of existence. Well, yeah, I mean, the process started in the 18th century. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Centralized speaking of record that, keepings was invented. So, yeah. Speaking of that, um, actually, uh, was, I said I was going to talk about Elf on the Shelf. I guess I'm going to. I don't know if you know what that horrible little bastard is, but... Nope. Okay. Professor warns that Elf on the Shelf conditions kids to accept living in a future police state. For some, the Elf on the Shelf doll, with its doe-eyed gaze and cherubic face, has become a whimsical holiday tradition, one that helpfully reminds children to stay out of trouble in the lead-up to Christmas. For others, like, say, digital technology professor... Lorena Pinto, the elf on the shelf, is, quote, a capillary form of power that normalizes the voluntary surrender of privacy, teaching young people to blindly accept the pantopic surveillance and rectify hemogenic power. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> the la Yeah. 
she didn't need to go there. Um, the latter perspective is detailed in Who's the Boss, a paper published by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, in which Pinto and co-author Selena Neroman argued that the popular seasonal doll is preparing a generation of children to uncritically accept increasingly intrusive, albeit whimsically packaged, modes of surveillance. Before you burst out laughing... Know that Pinto comes across as extremely friendly and not at all paranoid on the phone. She's also completely serious. The Elf on the Shelf is both a book and a doll. The doll is a soft pixie scout elf that parents are instructed to hide around the house. The accompanying book, written in rhyme, tells a Christmas-themed story that explains how Santa Claus keeps tabs on who is naughty and who is nice. The book describes elves hiding in children's homes each day during the holidays to monitor their behavior before returning to the North Pole each night with a report for the boss. Because we live in a world grappling with corporate smartphone surveillance, behavior management apps in the classroom, and private communication interceptions by various governments, Pinto, a digital technology professor at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, sees the elf on the shelf as one development among many threatening our collective definition of privacy. If she's right, in all likelihood, she's fighting a losing battle. The elf on the shelf book sold more than 6 million copies and joined Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade last year, according to the Daily Mail. I don't think the elf is a conspiracy, and I realize we're talking about a toy, Pinto said. It sounds humorous, but we argue that if a kid is okay with this bureaucratic elf, spying on them in their home, it normalizes the idea of surveillance, and in the future, restrictions on our privacy might be more easily accepted. Until the introduction of Elf on the Shelf, Santa's mythological helpers had always been relegated to the toy workshop, Pinto said. After the story and the toy were introduced by Chanda Bell, a one-time Atlanta reading teacher, the traditional narrative changed to include hiding surveillance back and, <laughs> hiding surveillance and back and forth travel, Pinto said. As evidenced by the millions of books and dolls sold, the Toronto Star writes, the story has become a cultural phenomenon, with parents littering their social media feeds with photos of the elf in strange places. Pinto said she's not the first person to be troubled by the elf on the shelf surveilling. She said parents routinely contact her to say they changed the rules of the game after it made their families uneasy. And many kids, she said, often intuitively feel like spying and being a tattletale is wrong. Mom emailed me and told me that the first day they read the elf book and put the elf out, her daughter woke up crying because she was being watched by the elf, Pinto recounted. They changed the game so it wouldn't scare the child. I'm a waverman, a blocker with a blogger, sorry, not blocker, with today's parent, told the start the idea of the elf watching someone all the time is creepy. It makes the motivation to behave something that's external. If I'm not around or if the elf is not around, do they act crazy? Translated into academia speak, Pinto and Roman make a similar point. Who's the boss? What's troubling there, right, is the elf on the shelf represents and normalizes anecdotal evidence reveals that children perform an identity that is not only for caretakers but for an external authority, similar to the dynamic between citizen and authority in the context of the surveillance state. Which, that was my contribution to the cheery Christmas story for this show. Um. I, I've got a good point for this one. Okay. Right, so these um, academics are blaming this elf. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> what about the whole history of religions that basically say, God's watching you all the time. <laughs> when you sin, God knows, because he's watching. How's that different? Well, it's not. It's, it's not. This, it's <laughs> 
it's this thing in the sky, you know. Yeah. But there really is no difference. But people do behave different when they're being watched. We know this. Well, so, p- people who are stupid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, most kids don't understand their psychology either. How it works, what tweaks them. You know? um, kids these days are less worried about people watching them than I think these academics realize. Well, it's probably they've hung around, but most kids I come across really don't seem to give a shit. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of an interesting story. Um, Oh, hang on, Jeannie's not here. Most kids these days really don't seem to fucking give a shit. (laughs) Gotta get a few in just to cover. Oh, that's right. Are are we <laughs> we trying to get me censored on Apple again? <laughs> <laughs> you did that yourself. Yeah, well, that was a hundred and... <laughs> I, I never said fuck so many times in one show. 113 times. I was having a really bad week. I try not to do that so much anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, it happens. But you're right. Jeannie isn't here, so... I think those academics are out of their fucking minds. There we go. Um, Definitely. I, well, I think they're externalizing their own fears. Yes, they are. You know? Children have completely different fears from adults. And being so watched, except for the monster under the bed or in the cupboard, really, I don't think the elf is having that effect exactly. Mm-hmm. It's because it's got those freaky glass eyes. <laughs> it's not because it's watching them as such. It's just the way its face is. It's freaking them out. It, it looks... It, the face on that thing just looks wrong. Well, it's like an old China doll. So, yeah. Yeah. And they're freaky. <laughs> <laughs> I I collect them, you know. Yeah, but you got to admit, the... The, the eyes on some of them are a bit disconcerting. Oh, yeah, but there's only so much you can do with glass, and you can't paint that, like, warmth, that human spark, you can't paint that into an eye. Oh, the, some of the craziest ones, though, are those, um, the ones with the Italian-made glass eyes, and it's, mm-hmm. they've blown the glass in such a way, so there is the coloured segments running through the ball, as it were, to try and simulate what an eye looks like. And they just look not nice when the eye's not blinking every... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's that weird unblinking stare. Um, It is kind of freaky. So yeah, you you don't want realistic eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Um... Okay, I said I was going to talk a little bit about China, so I guess I will. Um, when it comes to putting the kibosh on things, the folks at, um, wow, China's version of the White House, I'm not even going to try to read that. Long have, uh-huh, have few pairs. China has seen fit to ban ponds, long beards, zombies, American pork, British cheese, Clams from Alaska, Islamic-style clothing, TV programs that feature one-night stands, 
April Fool's jokes, Bitcoin, film stars who use drugs or pay for sex, Windows 8, smoking in public places, the entire Muslim holy month of Ramadan, and the Big Bang Theory. And that was just this year. Aside from the ban on smoking, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything inherently wrong or subversive with any one item on the verboten list. A fact, China's netizens were quick and more than happy to point out on blogs, social networking sites, microblogs, and other online communities when each ban was officially announced. Beijing just shrugs off the mockery and ridicule, insisting that each ban is for the good of China's masses and the party, of course. Still, it's hard to fathom how other bans on things like reincarnation and time travel can really make anyone's life better or help keep the CCP in power. To be fair, China did lift the ban on gaming guns, gaming consoles, Brazilian beef, and Lady Gaga in 2014, but the reasons why it did it are just as murky as why each one was banned in the first place. Now, in an announcement that isn't totally absurd, weird, or crazy, China has banned its own national anthem. A series of rules proposed by the government will set strict limits on when, where, and how March of the Volunteers, the anthem of the People's Republic since 1949, can be reformed, performed, a state-run news agency reported Friday. The bottom line is that China's national anthem can no longer be played or sung at weddings, funerals, and dance parties, which sounds reasonable to me. I'm also pretty sure the ban will make the lives of brides, mourners, and clubgoers much better. Under new rules, the anthem is to be reserved for major political and diplomatic occasions, as well as places such as sporting arenas and schools, said the BBC. But that doesn't mean the ban isn't a bit overbearing. When singing the anthem, people should dress appropriately, stand still, and be full of energy, according to the government. CNN noted that, according to the new rules, people must sing the powerful marching song in its entirety, enunciate every word, and follow the rhythm. No one is permitted to start or stop singing midway and alternate the melody, lyrics, or musical arrangement is forbidden. And, of course, no whispering, applauding, or talking on the phone either while the anthem is played. The rule is to standardize proper etiquette for the national anthem, which reflects national independence and liberation. Aha! Uh-huh. A prosperous, strong country and the affluence of the people, the official news agency said. People who break the rules will be criticized and corrected. Historians will tell you this isn't the first time March of the Volunteers has been banned. During the Cultural Revolution, its lyricist, Tia Han, was arrested, not his first time, and the song was replaced with The East is Red. The song was not officially restored to national anthem status until 2004, although with slightly different lyrics. Interestingly, the anthem was performed in official capacity in Hong Kong following the handover of the territory to the PRC in 1997. They just ban everything over there. Well, I agree with the Windows 8 thing, but... (laughs) (laughs) I do too. Windows 8's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, the National Anthem thing. Why is a journalist taking such great exception that the Chinese seem to want people to um, be respectful of their National Anthem? I don't know. They've gone too far, but I can see where they're coming from. You know, I, I can understand it in a way, I suppose. But I, I think it was just supposed to be kind of like lighthearted and, and funny, just sort of, you know, look, China band Lady Gaga and 
performing the national anthem at dance parties. Who does that? Yeah, that was my <laughs> thought. It's like, what kind of party is that? Yeah, so, that's yeah, kind of next, my question. And uh, next not we so have much the, the national anthem. for the weddings, because yeah, but the dance parties really. <laughs> <laughs> if if that's what's being played at your party, it's probably not a very good party. Well, you know, then the band probably helps you. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of cute and lighthearted. It wasn't really anything serious or... Well, yeah, because the Chinese do ban and unban things all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Dozens of things every year. So, yeah. Yeah. And like it says there, this isn't the first time they've banned their own (laughs) national anthem. (laughs) No, they ban their own national anthem all the time. Yeah. Um, keeps the keeps the bureaucrats busy, I suppose. Well, I, I think that's it. Certain governments have taken the art of bureaucracy to a level the likes of which I hope to never see in my lifetime. Uh, we have enough bureaucracy here for me, thank you very much. Um, the EU has bureaucracy on a level that's stunning. <laughs> um, but the master you know, of it all is China. They've been doing bureaucracy longer than anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, I just hope we never get our shit together that much. You know what I mean? Um, but speaking of bans, Tennessee City bans negative social media comments about city government employees, contractors. At a December City Council meeting in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, Commissioners voted 4-1 to to enact a policy forcing city contractors, employees, elected officials, and anyone doing business in any capacity with the city to sign an agreement stating that they will not make any negative comments on social media about the city or its employees, elected officials, and contractors. (laughs) Speaking of bureaucracy, social media and mobile technology have empowered civic activism on levels before unseen matters that once went on behind closed doors now merge in vivid detail on YouTube and activists, alternative media journalists and everyday people use sites like Facebook and Twitter to express themselves on issues that would have in the past been ignored by the mainstream media outlets. However, the increased transparency and civic engagement comes at some cost to elected officials and bureaucrats who prefer doing business in smoky back rooms without debate or public comment. According to the Chattanooga Times Free Press, city officials in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, have been overwhelmed by negative comments on social media and consequently enacted a new policy passed in a 4-to-1 vote at a December city commission meeting, banning all elected officials, city employees, city contractors, anyone else doing official business with the city for making any negative comments on their, their private social media accounts about anyone or anything with any connection at all to city government. The policy falls short of criminalizing negative comments by citizens not directly affiliated with the government, but does force elected officials, contractors, city employees, and anyone else doing business of any kind with the city to sign a contract which stipulates that they will be punished in the event they violate the rule. The rule specifically states that the affected parties are banned from making negative social media comments about the city itself, its elected officials, and associates, which would seemingly include private contractors. Commissioner Jeff Powers, a supporter of the policy, explained his frustrations with social media comments to the Chattanooga Times Free Press. Quote, it seems like every few meetings we're having to address something that's been on Facebook and created negative publicity. He also said addressing critics of the policy. The first thing everyone wants to say is, I can't post anything on Facebook. 
Well, you can, just not anything that sheds a negative light on any person, entity, board, or things of that nature. You can go ahead and post all you want. Commissioner Paul Don King, the the lone board member who voted against the measure, said, but what we are trying to say is that if I'm a city employee, you're trying to tell me what I can say at night. I call that freedom of speech. I can't understand that. Mayor Jane Dawkins said the measure was aimed at silencing what she called out-and-out lies and untruths. City Attorney Billy Gauger gave his opinion on the rules unpacked on freedom of speech. What this policy tries to do is reconcile that right with other rights. That makes sense. Yeah. Banning elected officials from making negative comments about the city or other elected officials seemingly transfers significant power to an administration backed by a majority as dissenters, such as Paul Don King in this case, could in the future be accused of violating the rule while advocating policy positions on social media websites like Facebook and Twitter. Also, city employees appear to now be banned from commenting on their consumer experiences with private businesses that incidentally have contracts with the city. Is the city really rich? I don't think so. Because there's going to be a hell of a lot of lawsuits heading their way. (laughs) Yeah. Because they are, that is an unenforceable law. I mean, I don't uh-huh. have great understanding of American law, but that is banning private behavior. Yes, which it is, is. You know, so that's against the law. They can't do that. Well, they can, but they're going to get end up getting sued to hell. Well, they just did it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, I think most people don't as a general rule, know their rights. Yeah. So most people go, oh, okay, that's fine. But I can remember there was a story we covered uh, seven months ago about a place that banned large gatherings. Yeah. Uh, a township, remember? It, it said you mm-hmm. couldn't have, like, more than seven people over to your house. Oh, they've got rules on that in the UK, town. but the police can't enforce it, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but most people don't know that. Yeah. But most people are very, very ignorant of their own rights. If you're not educated in your rights, then when somebody tries to violate them, you don't know they're violating your rights. Well, back after um, the aircraft building incident, is the way I refer to it, um, in the UK, when they brought in new terror laws, they were trying to ban gatherings of more than 10 people. You'd need to have permission from the police. And funnily enough, it never flew. Uh, well, and yet again, they tried have... to bring in areas of speech that you weren't allowed to uh, comment on, etc. But all that basically got repealed weeks after being brought in. Because <laughs> people got in contact with their politicians and went... Oi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, banning gatherings of more than 10 people. So there goes your church. Yeah. There goes your school board meetings. The uh, cinema. There goes your, you know. Hmm? <laughs> the cinema. Yeah. It basically yeah. meant a, a, a cinema couldn't show films without a police license. You're like, what? Well, well, I mean, honestly, you could be fined for owning a restaurant that was very popular. Yeah. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, 
And a lot of laws are just written so screwed up. When yeah. you look at them, you go, everybody's a criminal. But yes, that city um, is in for a lot of lawsuits from the aforementioned private contractors, disgruntled employees. Uh, yeah. Well, they shouldn't have gone know, there. Have, you can... You can have rules and contracts for employees saying things they're not allowed to talk about. Mm. But you can't when it's their own opinion. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a seriously scary kind of censorship. And it's amazing to me how much... I mean, that got mainstream press. Yeah. Oh, I'm unsurprised. And still, nothing's changed. They're yeah. sticking to their guns, and they probably will until they get their first couple million dollar lawsuit. Which will probably be within the next few weeks. Well, within uh, the first couple of weeks of it being fully enacted in law. Yeah, I would think so. Um, so, yeah. Okay, um, the latest Snowden revelations are dangerous for Anonymous and for all of us. The latest Snowden revealed revelation is that the British government's communication headquarters, the GCHQ, proactively targeted the communications infrastructure used by the online activist collective known as Anonymous. Specifically, they implemented distributed denial-of-services attacks on the IRC I used to really love IRC. Chat rooms used by Anonymous. They also implanted malware to out the personal identity details of specific participants. And while we only know for sure that the UK's GCHQ and secret spy unit known as the Joint Threat Research Intelligence Groups launched these attacks as an operation called Rolling Thunder in the US, NSA was likely aware of what they were doing because the British intelligence agents presented their program Interventions at the NSA conference in SIGDEV in 2012, not to mention the two agencies share close ties in general. Whether you agree with the activities of Anonymous or not, which have included everything from supporting the Arab Spring protests to DDoSing copyright organizations to doxing child pornography site users, the salient point is that democratic governments now seem to be using these very tactics against them. The key difference, however, is while those involved in Anonymous can and have faced their day in court for those tactics, the British government has not. When Anonymous engages in law-breaking, and they are taking a huge risk in they are taking a huge risk in doing so, but with unlimited resources and no oversight, organizations like the GCHQ and theoretically the NSA, yeah, theoretically the NSA, can do as they please, and it's this power differential that makes all the difference. There are many shades of gray about using DDoS attacks as a protest tactic, unlike a hack, which evolves, involves accessing or damaging data. A DDoS attack renders a web page inaccessible due to an excessive flood of traffic. As an anthropologist who has studied hacker culture, hacktivism, and anonymous in particular, I struggled to find some black and white moral certitude for each activities. But one member of anonymous told me. Trying to find a surefire ethical defense for anonymous DDoSing is going to twist you into moral pretzels. <laughs> Judging the moral pretzel of DDoS attacks requires understanding the nuances of how they are carried out. 
I'm not sure anybody really wants to hear this, but I'm going to go ahead anyway because it was interesting to me. DDoS attacks tend to be problematic no matter what the motivation. Still, they've been a worthwhile exercise in experimenting with a new form of protest in an increasingly digital era. In the case of Anonymous, this form of protest came about because of the banking blockade against WikiLeaks. While the protest was rooted in deceit, they used botnets, and many of their participants did not know that. It was certainly not destructive, especially since it was levied against a large organization that could withstand it. The whole point was to get media attention, which they did. But here's the thing. You don't even need to believe in or support DDoS as a protest tactic to find the latest Snowden revelations troubling. There are clearly defined laws and processes that a democratic government is supposed to follow. Yet here the British government is apparently throwing out due process and essentially proceeding straight to the punishment, using a method that is considered illegal and punishable by years in prison. Even if the DDoS attacks would do more damage upstream than to IRC, it's a surprising revelation. The concern here is that a shotgun approach to justice that sprays its punishment over thousands of people who are engaged in their democratic right to protest simply because a small handful of people committed digital vandalism. That is the kind of overreach that usually occurs when a government is trying to squash dissent. It's not unlike what happens in other, more oppressive countries. Since 2008, activists around the world have rallied around the name Anonymous to take collective action and voice political dissent. The last two years in particular have been a watershed moment in the history of hacktivism. Never before have so many geeks and hackers wielded their keyboards for the sake of political expression, dissent, and direct action. Even though some anonymous participants did engage in actions that were illegal, the ensemble itself poses no threat to national security. The GCHQ has no business infecting activist systems with malware and thwarting their communications. And if we're going to prosecute activists and put them in jail for large amounts of time for making a website unavailable for 10 minutes, then that same limitation should apply to anyone who breaks the law, be they a hacker, our next-door neighbor, or the GCHQ. As it is, the small subset of anonymous activists who engage in illegal civil disobedience face serious consequences. These activists, on both sides of the Atlantic, are currently paying a steep price for breaking the law because in the current form, the laws under which they're charged, the Computer Misuse Act in the UK and the CFAA in the US, tend to mete out more excessive and often disproportionate punishments compared to analogous offline ones. For instance, physical tactics such as trespass or vandalism of property rarely result in serious criminal consequences for participants and tend to be minor civil infractions instead of federal crimes. Yet that same nuance, which fundamentally recognizes the intention and consequences of such protest actions, is really extended to online activities. Criminal punishments for such acts can stretch out for years, disrupt lives, lead to felony charges or unemployment records, and result in excessively high fines. To put this in perspective, in Wisconsin alone, a man was fined for running an automated DDoS tool against Koch Industries' website for 10 seconds. He was protesting the millionaire Koch brothers' role in supporting Wisconsin's governor's effort to reduce the power of unions and public employees' right to engage in collective bargaining. The actual financial losses were less than $5,000, but he was charged a fine of $183,000, even though a far worse physical crime in the same state was fined only $6,400. In the UK, Chris Weatherland, I'm sorry, Weatherhead, who didn't 
directly contribute to a DDoS campaign, but ran communications hubs where the protests were coordinated, received a whopping 18-month sentence. This is even more time than was given to hackers who broke into computer systems, stole data, and dumped it on the Internet. Based on these and other sentences already handed out, it's clear that judges consider Anonymous's actions to be serious and punishable. Scores of Anonymous activists have already been in jailed, um, jailed or arrested. Meanwhile, agencies like the GCHQ face no such risks, deterrent, consequences, oversights, or accountability. The scenario is all the more alarming given that some of Anonymous's actions may be illegal and might warrant attention from some law enforcement agencies, but do not come close to constituting a terrorist threat. And that means we're inching into the same territory as a dictatorial regime criticized by democratic governments for not respecting internet freedoms. So I, I guess you make I that I have to say know. fuck hmm? because of chat. Well, and the story is showing extreme naivety on the part of the journalist who wrote it. Right. <laughs> because, well, history of hacking basically goes back to World War Two, And that, well, there's that lovely film about it now, about the code breakers that the British set up in World War Two. Right. That was never... That particular group was disbanded, but GCHQ has had groups of hackers ever since. Um, mm -hmm. I studied computing science and mathematics at university, and people I studied with ended up working for the civil service. And I think you can guess where. <laughs> and these people were good at certain types of programming. Um, so it's not new so this journalist suddenly going oh look it's terrible you know they're getting away with this it's like they've been doing it ever since the internet was invented What's, <laughs> what do you think a government was going to do and this well, is why the NSA works so closely with GCHQ because again the UK put itself ahead of the game slightly by already having things set up to do stuff online well they have the infrastructure already there oh yeah and the UK quite happy to uh, employ people who've been caught as hackers the people don't end up going to jail they end up working for GCHQ <laughs> I and think the we American have... government does similar. Well, we have the same experience here. I, I think honestly, though, saying that the government should be held as accountable as a citizen, that's right. Well, it that, is That's right. correct, and that's fair, and that's how things but should run, but that's never not happens. how it is. Yeah. I mean, GCHQ, unless they do something really rather drastic, is untouchable. Because even the Prime Minister in the UK doesn't know stuff they're getting up to. You know, no records are kept. This is <laughs> this is why there's very little about GCHQ in the Snowden releases. Because mm -hmm. the British are so versed in bureaucracy that 
they realised a very long time ago, if you don't want to get caught doing dodgy stuff, don't have paperwork mentioning it. <laughs> well, we're not that smart here, but I think the basic theory is sound. If you do something and it's a crime and the government does it to you, mm-hmm. it should still be a crime. Yeah. The punishment should be proportional for both groups. And oh, and incidentally, some of the cases they mentioned in the UK there, they didn't go into detail, but there's more to them than this okay. journalist saying. There was damage caused to systems. And saying that anonymous isn't a threat on the level of terrorists is really, really naive. Does well, this person not realise every single piece of technology we use is vulnerable to hackers. So they could screw everything up. A slight glitch added to, say, an air traffic control computer so that sea level is recalculated as seen in Die Hard 2 would have catastrophic consequences. And hackers right. can do that. They can. I think they rarely do. But um, I think both sides have about the same kind of skills to cause damage to systems. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, but you have one side that's just people. And I say just people. I mean, I don't. I don't want to say they're like you and me, um, but they are. They're people. <laughs> That's their chosen form of protest. I'm a reformed hacker. I'll have you know. Uh, I no, you're not. I don't know anybody who's a hacker. So shh. <laughs> <laughs> I said reformed. Shh. Still don't know anybody with that, that title. La 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 la. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> honestly. It just, from the standpoint of society and everything else, punishment for crime should be proportional across the board. It's not. There's serious problems with the justice system on both sides of the pond. Um, The story just pointed out some just kind of interesting things that aren't going to change. And like you say, the GCHQ is untouchable. So is our NSA. Um, that's really not going to change unless people demand it. And people aren't going to demand it um, unless it personally affects them, which is a shame. Oh, and of course, the article fails to mention that there were members of GCHQ and the NSA who probably participated in some of Anonymous's activities and have since not been heard of again. <laughs> um, so there are consequences in certain situations to what these people get up to. Yeah. If you're an embarrassment, you get disappeared. That's the equivalent to a jail sentence for spies. Please notice, I didn't say that. <laughs> Even though I know it's true, I didn't say it. I didn't say it because I have nothing concrete to prove that with. Well, it's just an opinion. I don't think it's an opinion. <laughs> I think it's the absolute truth. 
I just oh, didn't yeah. see it. There's, yeah, there is evidence, but it's uh, not easy to get hold of and keep. <laughs> no. So, one of the first... Remember when the EU came down with their lovely tobacco products directive? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> that was oh, the first time yeah. I had heard the term for what I now know is regulatory capture. Um, and it's a real problem. Oh, yeah. But it has been for the last 40 years. But people don't really think so. No. So... I read something yesterday that I thought was really interesting. Can regulation be fixed? The problem of regulatory capture goes all the way down. Okay. And this is pretty much what happens in America, but you can extrapolate it and it, it's global. Big business has captured the regulators, which has transformed, transformed the federal government into an accomplice to cronyism. Can the regulatory apparatus be repaired, or is it corrupt at its foundations? The authors of a recent article in the Wall Street Journal argue for reform, showcasing the strengths and weaknesses of pro-capitalist commentary in today's mainstream media. The authors correctly use free market logic to expose a problem with the government intervention as it is currently practiced, but then explicably, inexplicably offer a solution that would be susceptible to similar problems. Specifically, the Wall Street Journal focuses on regulatory capture by big business, but ignores the one obvious solution, eliminating the federal government's role altogether and relying instead on decentralized market mechanisms to protect the public. The article is promising as it begins, the financial scandal du jour involves leaked audio recordings that purport to show that regulators at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York were soft on Goldman Sachs. That's hard to imagine. Bankers never get away with anything. They always get punished. They always go to jail. The news is being treated as shocking by journalists who claim to be hard-headed students of financial markets. The real scandal here is in the excessive faith that liberal journalists and politicians continue to put in financial regulation. The media pack is discovering regulatory capture a mere 43 years after George Steigler published his landmark paper on the concept. Exactly right. The same crowd that decries the role of huge money in politics and fears that big business will take over the world then suggests giving the federal government more power. As if Leviathan will be constrained, not by billionaire bankers and arms manufacturers, but instead by voters punching chads every four years. The idea goes on that regulatory power trickles up to bureaucrats with good intentions and an unbiased understanding of the common good. It is worth dwelling on this crucial point. The whole shtick of the regulatory state is that we can trust a group of technocrats in Washington, D.C. to guard the interests of the people by standing up to the greedy, soulless business tycoon who, left to their own devices, would lie, cheat, and kill in order to turn a profit. Yet anyone with an open mind can see this approach has, time and time again, utterly failed in practice. For example, Henry... Mar Markopoulos has been writing the SEC since 1999, warning that Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. Yet the SEC, which has ties to Madoff and his family, ignored the obvious red flags. In the end, Madoff's kids turned him in. 
Or how about another classic example where the federal government stands valiantly in the breach to protect Americans from big bad oil companies? The Mineral Management Department uh, Service was the previous name of a group inside the Interior Department. In a major scandal that caused it to change his name, MMS employees in Colorado were caught accepting drugs and sex from companies that they were supposed to be regulating, while MMS employees in Alaska got in trouble for throwing a party with a cake that said drill baby drill on the frosting. The MMS also played a dubious role in events leading up to the disastrous BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico where the agency clearly went along with the giant oil company rather than acting as a disinterested referee. Returning to the original Wall Street Journal article, after so admirably marching down the field by quoting Stigler and casting naive progressives, it then fumbles the ball just before the end zone. The Wall Street Journal argues that the logical policy response to the inevitable regulatory capture is to enact simple laws that can't be gamed by the biggest firms and end their captive bureaucrats. It recommends ditching the Dodd-Frank nightmare and other rules, but putting in their place a simple requirement for more bank capital, an equity-to-asset ratio of perhaps 15%. Oh, Jesus Christ. The Wall Street Journal also endorses economist Charlie Kalamaris' plan to automatically convert a portion of a bank's debt into equity if the bank's market value falls below a healthy level. In light of these situations, one wonders if the Wall Street Journal team really understands how persuasive the problem of regulatory capture is. It's not as if Madoff found a loophole that said it's illegal to run a $50 billion a year Ponzi scheme unless you register in Vermont on the last day of February in a leap year. Madoff was clearly breaking existing laws on the books and the SEC simply looked the other way. Regarding the specific rules that the Wall Street Journal recommends, thinking that they will be resistant to regulatory capture, there are obvious dangers of abuse. For example, what types of assets can a bank use to qualify for its equity-to-asset ratio? And if they're risky bonds, are they market-to-market? And how often? If a politically-connected institution hits only 14% equity-to-asset ratio, why would Fed suddenly crack down on it when they can ignore existing rules? I mean... This is mostly about banking, but it also applies to everything else. The problem, you understand regulatory capture there. You understand that when they wrote the tobacco control law there, you understand that the regulators were basically the anti-tobacco industry. You know, it's the same here. It's the same with our FDA. You can't get a fair shot. It's the same with all regulation in the Western world. There isn't a single regulator in any industry that isn't being manipulated by the industry it's supposed to be regulating. It's insane. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, and there never will be. I don't think regulation can be fixed except by slicing the size of the government. Well, no, it's also about bringing in laws that say the only, you know, you can't have people who have direct monetary connections to an industry be regulators for that industry. Well, And it's not easy, by no means. It means you have to recruit um, people from university to work in regulatory fields. You know, like... Um, for the FDA, you'd, you'd need to have 
chemical experts and the like recruited from university, so they've had no industry connection before going to the FDA, which is almost well, impossible. But it's what how it should be. Um, they should be able to know about the subject but not have monetary connections. <laughs> well, and I agree with that, but I almost think if we're going to have regulation... You almost have to take it completely out of the hands of the government and put it into the hands of people. Well, that's what that's that's the joke. Is all these regulatory authorities when you look at their mission statements when they're set up, they are independent of the government, but at the same time they're not. <laughs> you know, the people who originally conceived the idea of regulation were like, yeah, we need we need to have it done by independent people so that the government can't stick their oar in and so the industry can't stick it or so in. Unfortunately, what it's become is the government sticks its oar in all the time and the industry sticks its oar in constantly. Uh, and well, it's a shame. <laughs> it's... I've talked about before how we had no federal regulatory agencies. They were legal. They are illegal. If you look at our Constitution and our Bill of Rights there and you read it, they're actually legal. Yeah. And it wasn't until Woodrow Wilson was elected president that he decided he wanted to help protect his friends. Yeah. His friends who run a ketchup company. Yes. Because at the time, there really was only like one ketchup company. And then other ketchup companies started coming out. We don't have a certain number of varieties. Yeah. But he wanted to protect the monopoly of his friends. Yes. So that's how the FDA came about. And I know most people know it from the thalamide scandal. But it was just like the food safety agency at that point, which was the precursor for the FDA. Yeah. So it, it as a regulatory agency, came about in a corrupt manner. And it has continued. Well, it, I mean, it, once, it is... It is. I think it is necessary. You do need to have regulators. But I don't you, the regulatory capture and the levels of regulatory capture that have now occurred in the Western world are just sickeningly stupid. Um, See, I don't I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you have to have regulators, but I, I'm at the point where I'm like Industry I, I sadly has got too big to just let industry decide what's good and bad and hope the public make the right choices in supporting the right companies because the companies manipulate the public um, I, so you do need regulators but the way they've been set up and the way they're run is just ridiculous I think I'm one step away from being Lysander Spooner I don't think you need regulators yeah. I don't think you even need a government most civilised people know how to live ah yeah. <laughs> hmm. I, see, I don't know about that. <laughs> I kind of do. I've I've watched my government over a degree of years become so corrupt that there's no way to get the rot out. You you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, there's no way the rot is not going to go away. Yeah, I mean, there's always, in anything involving humans, there is always going to be an element of rot. It doesn't matter what it is, 
what you're doing, there's always going to be people throwing spanners in the works. It's more a question of controlling how far it goes. And in more recent years, <laughs> the last decade, it's really got out of control. Um, it really has. It, it's bad, but yeah. it's globally bad, which is yes. why I'm kind of saying I, I'm at the point where well, I don't of, a know. A lot of people dislike China because, you know, communist country controls loads of aspects of its um, population. But if you, I mean, you read the news, what happens to politicians over there that screw up the rules? They get killed. Yes, or go to jail forever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they've they've... They're doing it, <laughs> weirdly, in a better way than we are. <laughs> it's um, just the rest of their government that kind of, yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> you know, we have a mixed system. Here yeah. in America, we have a mixed system. And it's it's not even mixed the way it used to be, where it was kind of mixed between um, a socialist system and a capitalist system. and And now it's tipping wildly one way. Yeah. And one thing I've learned from studying economics, because I like money, for as long as I have, is that the only place you're ever going to have something that is, I would say China is almost completely a free market system. Yeah. I am the only person I know who will make that argument. But the only place something, a completely free market system will work is a place like China. Yes. I, when I tell you I'm like, like Sanders Spooner, I, I really am. I think if you have competition that helps with healthy regulation because yeah. it competition forces businesses to be better. Well, that's, as I say, we, that's, that's what, in some ways, that's what the Chinese have got right. The government there only steps in when companies go too far um, and politicians, if they go too far. Anyone who messes up and makes the country a worse place ain't going to enjoy themselves in China. Um, whereas uh, in the Western world we had all our bankers screw up and they all got lovely pensions and pats on the back and yeah, see well, ya, that, yeah, you go. That, yeah. that one guy went to jail though. Yeah. Yeah, one out of how many hundred um, that should yeah, have been? Yeah, that one guy went yeah. to jail. No, we need... Uh... So yeah, when we, you, as, you, as you say, you need a mixed system. Um, we have the that. Chinese are too far one way, we're too far the other way. <laughs> you need a mixture. Um, you, you do, actually, for a society to function and not take and throw its homeless people and its old people and its sick out into the street. You kind of need a mixed system. And I mean, I hate saying things like this because well, yeah, it I mean, it's, it's makes true. me we're, sound we're weird. In the, but we're, it's in true. The, we're in the midst of the holidays and in the UK. There's a charity called Trussell Trust who are expecting to have their busiest year ever. This is a charity that runs food banks. And yet we are one of the richest countries trade-wise in the world. <laughs> well, for one of my favourite terms in the world is income inequality. Mm-hmm. Every country has it. You can have a very rich country where there are proportionately more poor people than there are rich people, which is what you have here and what we have here. Or you can have a country where proportionately everyone is poor, but their living standard is pretty high. And there are countries that are like that, but... 
Well, one because <laughs> of the because of the Scottish independence debate, the the ones that kept getting pointed out were the Scandinavian countries. And yeah, but um, yeah, Salmond was trying to convince us that we could just leap in and become like Norway and Sweden. That's like. But you said you'd be cutting taxes and stuff, and Norway and Sweden have some of the highest, highest taxation yes. anywhere on the planet, mm-hmm. so that they can run their society as a very equal place. <laughs> you know, it's, you can't have it always. <laughs> no, it, it's a choice. It's a conscious choice. And yes, the beer, the beer drinkers in the audience, you, you should know that in uh, Sweden, a pint of beer would cost you the equivalent of um, probably around $25. Shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they 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 have high wages there. Yes, because they have some of the best health care so in the world. Old people over there want for nothing. Um, they actually, over in Sweden, they have really the neatest thing I've ever seen. They built a whole village. I don't, have I ever talked about this? Um, I don't know. I don't okay, know where I you're probably going. <laughs> they built a whole village, and they did it as an experiment. And there's 23 houses in it, and everybody who works in the village is a caretaker, and they're caretakers for people who have differing stages of Alzheimer's disease. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Right, and everybody's house is decorated to the last era that they remember, and everybody from the taxi driver to the lady at the post office, it's the, they're it's all the, medical it's the, it's the local shop is just amazing. Because they've got all, think, the, all the stuff with the um, like 1960s food packaging, and mm-hmm. you know, they, they take modern products. You know, they must employ a crap load of people who just get delivered. The delivery comes in. And then they've got to take off all the modern packaging and put on the old-fashioned packaging just so they can sell it at that shop. It's a miraculous thing to see. But yeah, It's it's really interesting. It's really interesting. They set up up one of those over here as well. Yeah, those people are doing great. They live longer, they live happier, they're not in the hospital at the time, they're not... They're not on IVs. They have a really good quality of life. Well, I mean, that, that's that, why... That was, uh, that was a choice that that yeah. government chose to make. Yes. I mean, oh, our, and our, you went on about the EU and it's like <laughs> politics, corruption, people claiming huge expenses, all that kind of stuff. Right. Not if you're a Swedish MEP, you don't. Um, and under parliamenta- par- parliamentarians... Uh, over there, there's none of this claiming for uh, having to have a second house near the parliament so that you can do your business. If if you do not have a flat that you're willing to pay for yourself, out of your own pocket, in Sweden, they basically have a dormitory for <laughs> politicians. It's like, well, you can either live at your own expense or live in this dormitory. None of this claiming huge expenses... When they travel, they've got to take the cheapest possible option. Um, all that kind of stuff. Something you know, that most that, countries would never go near. But Sweden? No. You're a politician over there. You're a politician because you want to be a politician, not because you're going to be making money. <laughs> you know, but that's, like I said, that's that's a choice that their government and, and the people support them have, have chosen to make that choice. Yeah. Um, our government has not done that. Your government has not done that. 
Um, yeah, most most so, governments are a so cash cow for the politicians. Yeah, it, it makes it makes things really complicated. Yes. So, but I was stunned when I read about the 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 the, the uh, how they treat their politicians. You're like, really? Well, you still get people wanting to be politicians? Because in some ways, it's you know, it, it's it's brilliant. It's it's a wonderful thing, but. Yeah, I bet it means they don't have all these uh, power-mad crazy people to the same extent everywhere else has. Because literally, you know, there's no money in it. <laughs> well, everybody talks about getting the money out of politics. Yeah. That that would be one way, I guess. Um, I don't know what the ideal solution is. I do know that... I think something like what Sweden's done is the ideal solution, but I think you as a society have to reach that point. I don't think we've reached that point. We're getting there rapidly in the UK with all the expenses scandals we've had in the last few years with our politicians. Um, My basic solution, (laughs) which politicians would never fly with over here, but... But is if you're rich and you become a politician, you don't get a wage and you don't get expenses because you're rich. (laughs) If you're a working-class person who goes into politics and don't have all this money and wealth, you're the one who gets a flat paid for near the parliament travelling expenses because you can't afford to be a politician otherwise. If you're rich, I don't think you should get a penny. (laughs) Well, you know... Most men who get elected are rich. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the way of the world we live in. But what I was going to say is I think the way Sweden and Iceland and other countries have chosen to do things is right. And it's right for them. And it works because in a way they're kind of a little more as the society evolved. But that's what happens when you have nothing but fucking six months of darkness to look forward to, I guess. <laughs> Um, well, I, I you, guess you become a little more. Well, yeah, you you can. The, all you need to know about the Scandinavian countries is watching their their filmed entertainment and their literature. I mean, uh, their the Millennium Christmas series. Shit, if you watch Christmas the Millennium series, and, oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> but the Millennium series that that's you know the 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 height of um, Scandinavian thriller writing and. Yes, West, the rest of the Western world was kind of horrified by some of the stuff in those <laughs> books and films. Uh, we won't um, go with the remakes, we'll go with the originals. Uh, I've just been re-watching the original extended versions. But, uh, yeah, it's they have a very dark sense of humour, uh, which goes with, as you say, I think the lack of sunlight in the winter. I, I think so too. Um, actually, one of my favourite books and films is Let the Right One In. Oh yes, it's another prime example. It's not not pretty happy friendly. (laughs) No, it's not, and not the remake. Well, you won't, I I don't think... The remake was was actually really nice. It did not show that little girl for the scheming little bitch she was. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, over here we get their TV dramas now as well. (laughs) And... (laughs) Oh, it makes it makes um, traditional police shows look kind of boring and tame because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. they're not they're not um, they're not afraid to 
um, show things off. Well, they show some really ugly stuff, but like their Christmas stuff is just absolutely horrifying. Yeah. It really is. Um, so I don't think any system is going to make everybody happy. What no. we have here is a mixed system. When I say we have a mixed system, people get pissed off, but I'm going to tell you we have a mixed system. And when I say that is, what is any more socialist, really, than paying for police, paying for fire departments, paying for, you know, all sorts of things that maybe not everybody uses. That's a very socialist thing to do. And we do that here. And we accept it, and that's just the way things are. If overnight every government in the world decided to privatize that stuff, I think you would find that as bad as it is for the middle class now, the middle class would be completely gone. Well, they, they, they know privatizing certain things just doesn't work. Uh, we. We did that experiment in the early days. You know, like the first fire brigades and police forces in the UK were all private companies, basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was an awful lot more fires than there were <laughs> before they had a fire brigade. After so then it got nationalised because uh, you know you didn't have you didn't have companies sending representatives around to companies going, it looks quite flammable. Your company, uh, <laughs> you want to buy some insurance? Um, <laughs> And it was the it, same with the police. I mean, until it was made a public thing, yeah, the police were brutal in the UK. It There's no solution for really any of this stuff, but what I try to do is not take one view of everything. Yeah. I try to look at everything and try to figure things out, and I don't know what's going to work. But I do know that the government's too fucking big here. Yeah. Way too big. And yeah. it's top-heavy. It's toppling. It's turning into Rome here. We well, cannot all, keep doing all governments in history have gone that way. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, society has a lifespan. Humanity survives, but societies don't. Uh, it's, it's a fact. You just need to look at history. As you say, the Roman Empire eventually collapsed. Because, yeah... It, it degraded. Well, um, it collapsed under, actually, Greeks, under same thing the, happened. I mean, you know. under its own weight, under the weight of the the corruption and the things that it tried to do with its monetary system, and that's also a problem. Which is, yeah. we're coming to the point. I said it a few shows back, and I still believe that well, we're going to require a radical rethink of money. Yes. Um, simply because we're coming to the point where. Technology is going to be able to do so many of the jobs that people who can't afford to go to the university and get an education have done. Yeah. Things are going to have to change whether we like it or not, and that's because society has moved on and moved forward. I don't claim to have the solution to that. And I don't live a really super modern lifestyle. Yeah. I have a computer. I have a semi dumb phone that's about it everything else i do i kind of live old-fashioned i cook my dinners at home i 
grow things. I make things by hand. Um, if tomorrow I didn't have power or I didn't have a computer, I didn't have a phone, I could still survive. <laughs> and not a lot of people can make that claim. No, I, I freely admit I would go crazy. I, would, I have said in the past, if my, if I lost the internet, I'd probably be one of these people going crazy, killing people in the street. I mean, it's 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 um, it's basically it's a sad thing to say in some ways, but it's the majority of what I do revolves around my computer. With me, it's not really like that. You know, it's always on, and I do I do a lot with it. Yes. But I could go back to old-fashioned books and a library catalog, card catalog system tomorrow with absolutely no problem. I could go back to writing things in notebooks and sending letters through the post. None of that would bother me. Shall I tell you something that, uh, <laughs> that my, my lecturers found kind of weird at the okay. time? And most people would. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact I was doing computing science and mathematics, all the software I used to write, I didn't do it on a computer, I did it on paper before I put it in the computer. <laughs> I think there's something about books. You don't get it from a touchpad, you don't get it from a tablet, you don't get it from a computer. There's a certain sense of absorbing knowledge from turning pages and there's a certain sense of learning you get from writing things down do not get that from dealing with a computer yeah but yes i I would go crazy without computer the only reason i've got a smartphone is so that if i'm ever away from home i can still have computer contact Because I can't take my desktop with me. <laughs> At least you admit it. You, well, I mean, you, you see, I posted a picture of my desk layout that I constructed I this week. Yeah, you can't exactly pop that in a bag and take it with you. So, uh, mm. yeah, I ended yeah. up with a reasonable smartphone. So I can <laughs> still do things when I'm out and, around, out and about. But, yeah. Uh, also, as you say, I, I'm, I'm of the transitional generation, shall we say. I mean, um, I got my computer, first computer, when I was um, seven years old. And I've had one almost constantly ever since, apart from a brief uh, little eight-year gap where I got bored with them. Mm-hmm. But So I, I can still do everything the old-fashioned way. But on days where it's very occasional these days, where you lose your internet... You mm-hmm. do just find it incredibly annoying suddenly not having all the information instantly available. <laughs> yeah, but just think about this. One, at least here, our power grid is really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. We know that. Um, one good EM pulse, everything's fried. Yes. What do you do then? Well, I'm sorry to say that a lot of these people over-dramatize what would happen if an impulse happened. Well, technologically I'm, I'm speaking, here, in a we'd city, be, we could get it back up and running in a few days. Right, but it's literally is not that hard. Right, but in the meantime, few, you've got to stop the public going crazy and killing people. That's and, what I'm saying. Those three days. 
are going to be about the three worst days for people who are used to taking selfies and Snapchat and um, all those things. Well, that's not there, something I tend to get up to anyway. So yeah, it's but not you, that you know bit what of I'm it. Saying. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. It's not that part that, that that would annoy me. As I say, it's the loss of information. Instantly available information is a lovely thing. Well, it's a lovely thing, but it's not always true, you know. And that—that's no. the hard part is just trying to discern the truth from everything. Yeah. Well, I—I I, I tend to deal with more uh, technological things, so yeah, the internet is a useful tool for that. If you need to know how to do something of a technical nature, you can. Mm-hmm. It takes you seconds to find. Oh, yeah. Things on the internet. Well, okay, it takes me seconds. <laughs> I, I find it quite humorous how bad some people are with Google and search engines. But I've been oh. using them most of my life. So, for instance, somebody was looking for a part for a mod. Mm-hmm. The micro switch on their mod had jammed. Mm-hmm. And they went, oh, I found one the same, but I can't find it anywhere but this one site. And within two minutes, I had a part number and manufacturer for them. Nice. <laughs> I just, that's one of them. As I say, I used to specialise in data encryption and stuff like that, so I know all the secrets of search engines involving commas and quotes and all sorts of weird things you can do with them. So, basically, you talk to the machines. Yeah, well, um, I used to program in machine code. And and unless unless you're a really old computer programmer, you will have no idea what that is. Hexadecimal, I used to do. Um, okay. Again, know nothing about that, but I know the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. Well, I used to as well, but, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you in certain ways. It's, I don't know, there's, there's no balance anymore. And that's in government, in the monetary systems, and you can see it. You know, there's a general unhappiness that's kind of planet-wide. And I think change is going to come. I don't know if everyone is going to like it. But hopefully, um, next year is better than this year. Yes. And uh, I will settle for that. Um, And I think that's about it. Because I've got to work all the rest of the week. And I know Kevin said I wasn't having a show. But um, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin lied. Kevin does not speak for me. <laughs> so, uh, before I go, and before we run the advert, please tune in Christmas Day at 10 a.m., is it? Yes. Eastern three, Standard three, Time? 3 p.m. Oh, Greenwich 10 p.m. Time. So 10 a.m. Eastern okay. Standard. 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time because there will be a show on VP Live. Weirdly, some crazy person. Yes. Uh, I have the holiday off. That's nice. I love working in retail. These people have have holidays. (laughs) I used to work in catering. No holidays Uh, off for me. 11 years. No time off at Christmas and New Year. You can't really enjoy holidays if you have to work them 
Well, at all. I didn't really celebrate the holidays anyway, so it wasn't really a loss to me. But yeah, uh, yeah. and in hotels and restaurants, that's when you make your best money. So yeah, I used to um, myself and my sister. Um, I run the restaurant. My sister ran the bar one year in the same hotel. Okay. And when I finished in the restaurant, I went and helped her with the bar, and vice versa. Because um, we're both managers, you know. Um, and just from tips alone, we funded all our smoking and drinking for the whole Christmas and New Year period without touching our wages. <laughs> and we were smoking 100 cigarettes a day because we were working 18-hour shifts. <laughs> uh so yeah, it's your best time of year. Uh, but yeah, I used to work between 16 and 18 hours a day for the whole of the holiday period. I used to really not like that. That whole long... I, I don't mind working every day up until... But like a 16, 18 hour day is just ridiculous. I yeah. I hate... That's why I hate doing inventory. Well, I mean, it, it meant you're, like, in the three days the hotel was open at Christmas... You're making the same money as you would normally in a week and a half, even in your wages, let alone the tips. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> and then the hotel was shut between Christmas and New Year, so that's when you celebrated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I have Christmas Day off, which is kind of nice. Oh, I, I did do something today I've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I bought myself the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. All right. I've always loved that stupid thing. <laughs> now I actually have a tree up in the house. I, I, I have no Christmas decorations whatsoever. <laughs> but like I say, I've never really celebrated. After I was about 12, I never really celebrated Christmas. Uh, although I kept my family uh, going for a couple of years after that, before they realised that I didn't really give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just in it for the presents. <laughs> I, um... As a kid, I kind of liked Christmas. It was yeah. kind of nice. Everybody got together and sat around and ate together because normally when you live on a farm, somebody's always working. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nobody really ate together. Or when you did eat, you kind of ate in shifts. So it was kind of nice everybody being together at the same time. Everybody made something. Um, it was more a food holiday than anything else. And I still really like handmade Christmas stuff. I like to make a lot of the stuff that I give to people because I still have that sense of, I don't know. I don't even know what you call it. Hard work. I don't know. That puritanical yeah. sense of the best gift you can give someone is the gift you've made yourself or the gift of your time. Oh, yeah, I mean, some of the best presents I've given people in the past were things I made. I had a friend who's who who likes her um, paganism, I think, is the politest way to describe it. But, you know, mm. she, she reads tarot cards and does birth uh, natal charts for people, birth charts, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And right. I made her a dragon head staff. I hand-carved a dragon head staff for her. And she still has it. It hangs over her fireplace in pride of place. <laughs> I need to get back into wood carving. I keep meaning to make myself a, a variable wattage pipe. Uh, but good quality 
wood to carve with costs an awful lot of money these days. That's true. Um, so, yeah. Um, tune in Christmas Day, 10 a.m. It should be informative and fun. Um, uh, also, 8 a.m. that morning, if you're... And I'm not embarrassed to admit this. Fuck it. I, I sat down and watched it. I watched uh, the Grumpy Cat Christmas movie the other day because I can't <laughs> fucking stand most Christmas films. And it was stupid. But damn, that cat's cute. And that'll be on uh, Christmas morning at 8 a.m. on Lifetime. And it's it's family friendly, so if you have kids, they can watch it. And well, I guess over, that's over all I have. In the so... cinema, we have a film at the minute about Santa being in jail. Mm. Oh. It's a children's film. <laughs> uh, have a really good Christmas everyone and uh, soon we'll be playing the uh, ammo ad because that's just how we roll Merry Christmas you guys thanks for listening and we'll see you next year why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. AmmoSeek.com.